back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 51 of the podcast, but it's also episode 3 of Room for Debate. Now before we begin, I have two quick bits of housekeeping. First, thank you to everyone who came up and said hi at ACR. It was wonderful to meet you, and I appreciate hearing from people who are listening to and sharing the podcast. The second is that I make whiteboard videos now. Not sure how often this will be, trying to get funding to make it a thing, but the first one is up. Check it out at whiteboardebm.com. With that, I'd like to hand over the microphone to Dr. Sarah Fantas, who kindly agreed to moderate this debate. Great. So the debate um, for today, we're going to be talking about a contentious issue in GCA management. Our motion for the debate is that all patients with newly diagnosed GCA should start glucocorticoids with tocilizumab over glucocorticoids alone. So we asked this question to our followers on Twitter. Over 100 people replied, and 51% agreed with the emotion, 34% disagreed, and 15% were undecided. Arguing for the motion, we have Dr. Anisha Dua. Um, she's a rheumatologist at Northwestern University, the co-director of the vasculitis program, and she was also on the ACR vasculitis guidelines committee. Arguing against the motion is Dr. Mike Putman, who's um, also at Northwestern University. We'll start with opening statements from each side. Uh, Dr. Dua, would you like to begin? For my side of the debate, I'll be arguing that patients with newly diagnosed GCA should start glucocorticoids with tocilizumab over glucocorticoids alone. We know of so many potential medications and interventions that seem to hold promise in prospective and retrospective studies but go on to fail when put to the test of a randomized control trial. Tocilizumab, however, was evaluated in the very well-designed randomized control trial, GIACTA, which included 251 patients with newly diagnosed or relapsing GCA. It evaluated not only tocilizumab versus the standard of care, which is steroids, which has been steroids for a very long time, but also whether we could use less steroids overall. Based on this trial, tocilizumab was the first drug approved by the FDA in over 50 years for the treatment of GCA in 2017. So, tocilizumab should be used first line along with steroids in patients with GCA because of three main reasons. Those are efficacy, quality of life, and safety. First, we'll talk about efficacy. Basically, tocilizumab works. It works in achieving remission, in preventing flares, and decreasing the amount of steroids our patients are getting. In the GIACTA trial, tocilizumab weekly achieved sustained remission in over half of patients compared with about 14% in the 26-week steroid taper and 18% in the 52-week taper. There were significantly less flares in the tocilizumab weekly group, and further analysis of the results showed that the benefits of tocilizumab with prednisone over prednisone alone um, for remission induction were apparent as early as eight weeks into the trial. In fact, of the patients who did flare, most occurred while the patients were still receiving prednisone. And it's also interesting to note that acute phase reactant levels were not reliable indicators of flare, in patients treated with tocilizumab or in the prednisone alone arms. As of the ACR this past month, we have even more compelling data with three years of follow-up. Even after patients entered complete remission, the median time to first flare while not receiving tocilizumab was longer for patients in the original tocilizumab group. It was close to 600 days in the weekly tocilizumab group versus somewhere between 100 and 300 days in the placebo arms. Weekly tocilizumab patients remained flare-free the longest, and this benefit was even seen in many patients after the drug was stopped. For those who did flare, re-challenge with tocilizumab was able to put them back into complete remission. 
Clearly, less steroids were used overall in the tocilizumab group, with about half the cumulative dose in the tocilizumab weekly group when compared to either of the placebo arms. Moving on, quality of life. We all recognize the increasing importance and value of patient-reported outcomes in evaluating any intervention. With tocilizumab weekly, GCA patients showed statistically significant as well as clinically significant improvement in the SF36 and the facet fatigue score when compared with steroids alone. At the end of one year, patients in the weekly tocilizumab arm had a quality of life to levels at least comparable to those of age and gender-matched normative values. They actually exceeded the normative values in five of eight domains. And then we'll talk about safety. Lastly, but maybe most importantly, let's touch on this. So adverse events were actually numerically higher in the placebo arm. It was 15% versus 25% compared to the tocilizumab weekly arm, although it didn't reach statistical significance. Serious infections were the most concerning, occurring in up to 7% of those on weekly tocilizumab and in 12% of those on the 52-week steroid taper. There were higher rates of neutropenia in the tocilizumab group, but this did not translate to increased infections. Also reassuringly, there are no new safety signals over three years of follow-up. We are well aware of the risks that are associated with high-dose and long-term steroids, and these patients that we're treating for GCA are elderly, they often have more, more comorbidities, including hypertension, diabetes, and we need to be cognizant of the significant downsides of putting these patients on steroids alone, especially now that we have a clearly better option that not only works better, it decreases steroid exposure and improves their quality of life, and most importantly, is safe. Thanks, Dr. Dua. And now uh, to Dr. Putman arguing against the motion. All right. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you to both of you for participating <laughs> with this debate. Uh, so that was a very persuasive argument. Uh, but let me offer three reasons we should not be giving tocilizumab upfront over glucocorticoids alone. The first is that tocilizumab is not a panacea, and I'd like to focus on outcomes. So the primary outcome measure in JACTA was sustained glucocorticoid-free remission at week 52. That's not mortality, and that's not even morbidity. In fact, patients who received greater than 100 milligrams of methylprednisolone within six weeks of enrollment were explicitly excluded. So patients with the outcome that we really care about, which is vision loss, uh, were functionally not even part of this trial. Now, JACTA further complicated things by defining glucocorticoid-free remission as the absence of a flare and the normalization of the CRP. Erasing the CRP, which tocilizumab reliably does, is not an outcome that matters to patients. This leads me to my next concern, which is that tocilizumab makes it very difficult to monitor patients with GCA. I would not advocate for treating an isolated CRP, but I would also not advocate for treating your patients while blind to a useful laboratory marker of disease. That is essentially what you must do once you start tocilizumab and the ESR and CRP melt away. JACTA compounds this issue by effectively excluding patients at risk of vision loss, who are also the group in whom you would be most scared of silent progression. Third, I think it's important to remember the cost of this therapy, both to patients and to society. No treatment is without risk, and this motion encourages you to give a treatment that causes infections and diverticular rupture to a large group of elderly patients. Remember, trials frequently enroll younger, healthier, and more classic patients than we see in clinic. As such, benefits may be less and harms may be greater in real life. At a societal level, tocilizumab also costs at least $35,000 per year. Supporting this motion will be enormously expensive to society as a whole. I'd like to close with a nod to our colleagues across the pond. Yes, the ACR guidelines recommended start tocilizumab upfront, 
However, our wise colleagues in Europe explicitly recommend initial therapy with glucocorticoids alone for a large number of patients. They correctly note that a third of patients will go into durable remission on glucocorticoid therapy without any adjunctive therapy at all, unnecessarily giving one in three patients an expensive medicine, one that does not clearly reduce outcomes that matter, is something I would like to avoid. Please vote against the motion if you agree. Thanks, Dr. Putman. Um, now we're going to move on to the question and answer portion of the debate. Um, my first question, let's start with Dr. Putman. Um, some of the things that you mentioned about the downsides of tocilizumab were um, inability to monitor the CRP and the cost, which would potentially not um, be issues with methotrexate. So what do you think about the role of methotrexate in this clinical situation? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I should note that the ACR guidelines do not exclude the possibility of starting glucocorticoids plus methotrexate up front. Uh, and stepping back and comparing trials, which, by the way, no one should ever do, uh, the number needed to treat for tocilizumab for glucocorticoid-free remission at 52 weeks was four. That's if you exclude the CRP, which, of course, you should do. In the infamous Hoffman study of methotrexate, there was supposedly a negative trial where they gave less than 15 milligrams of methotrexate per week at max. The number needed to treat was about five. So that's really not that different. Moreover, we have zero head-to-head -head data for methotrexate versus tocilizumab. There's a trial in France that will attempt to answer this question, but until it concludes, I don't think you can argue that tocilizumab is definitively better than methotrexate. I do concede that a lot of people believe that. So for physicians who are especially concerned about starting glucocorticoid sparing therapy, methotrexate is something that be, can be considered. And after all, I mean, this is rheumatology. That's kind of what we do. <laughs> no, I agree. This is kind of what we do. We are rheumatologists. We, we like to use methotrexate. Um, and we like to use anything that helps us use less steroids, right? So I am not arguing that methotrexate has no role in this disease. And of course, if I have a patient who comes in who has, you know, a history of diverticulitis, I may opt to use methotrexate over tocilizumab um, up front to try to prevent flares and prevent relapses um, and get these patients into remission. But even you said the number needed to treat was lower in uh, the tocilizumab group. So when we're talking about trying to get these really sick patients better, I want to use the the therapy that has been proven in a giant, really well-designed, randomized control trial that met its primary endpoint, I want to use that drug. And if I were the patient, that's the drug I'd want to get. So again, I think methotrexate has, has some role, um, and we will hopefully get more answers after the Frank study concludes. But um, at this point, I think we have really strong evidence to support tocilizumab. Thanks, Dr. Dua. Now for our second question. Dr. Putman mentioned that Tocilizumab is not a panacea, and we do only have one uh, randomized controlled trial supporting its use. So, Dr. Dua, let's start with you. Are there some patient populations in which you don't think that the use of tocilizumab is appropriate? So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that, like I mentioned, patients with diverticulitis are not patients that I would consider using tocilizumab in upfront. Like Dr. Putman mentioned, there are one in three patients who may get better with steroids alone, but then we aren't sure of what those what exactly that patient population is made of, right? Who are the people that are going to respond to the steroids alone? If we knew that, that would be great, but we don't at this point. So I'd rather cover my bases and treat with tocilizumab. That being said, um, you know, infections are obviously something you consider, but in this trial, infections were actually lower in the tocilizumab group, but you can't stop the injection once you put the injection in, right? Steroids are something that are a little bit more adjustable, so maybe in a really like sick elderly population with a lot of recurrent infections who maybe have really mild disease. Those are probably the types of things that I would consider using 
not Tosilizumab. But for the most part, as a rule, I would use Tosilizumab up front. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. I can see why people would uh, lean that way, especially with the guidelines. I, I do think that this point about the kinds of patients who are in this trial is an important one. I already talked about how they were not people who had vision loss up front, which is important. But, you know, they're around seven years old. Um, they're mostly female, which mirrors what we see in, in clinical practice. They're overwhelmingly white. Uh, and I think that you should just give pause when you have a trial like that. It may not be as generalizable to all of our patients as we would expect. And in case Cases like that, sometimes the best thing to do is just to be cautious. Um, it, you know, I think that we're worried about the steroids that people get if they don't go on tocilizumab. But a lot of the time, if someone flares, then uh, you can just go back to the last steroid dose that worked and then start the drug. That's kind of what the European guidelines recommended. And I think that would be a reasonable strategy to kind of deal with this uncertainty. If we don't know exactly whether or not your patient applies to this trial, you could be a little cautious and not start them on the drug up front. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, definitely. But, um, you know, as you mentioned, the patients in this trial are, are about 70-year-old Caucasian females, which is really pretty representative of the population that's affected by giant cell arteritis. Granted, they may not have had as many comorbid diseases, but that's another reason to actually avoid steroids in my mind or try to minimize them, right? Not avoid them completely. We need them as part of this regimen. But these if they were sicker and they had more diabetes and hypertension and kidney disease and were actually that elderly worrisome population, those are really reasons to minimize steroids in my mind. So again, I, I still think that kind of leads us towards my side of the argument, surprisingly. <laughs> so I, I get that. I think it's good to minimize steroids wherever we can. But a fear that I have with patients who are on tocilizumab is that we lose the CRP and perhaps they have some subclinical disease that's worsening. So how would you respond to that fear? I mean, do you get more, are you more aggressive about imaging? Um, do you expose people to more testing to try and make sure that's not happening? And this is especially worrisome for me among people who had vision loss who weren't part of this trial, because um, if we miss those people, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously think that, you know, Tocilizumab does make the CRP hard to put any weight on, but there are other things we, we use to monitor these diseases, right? If we were just basing it on CRP, then yeah, tocilizumab would make it very difficult to, to monitor disease activity and, and decide when to escalate therapy or pull things down. But we use clinical symptoms, we use imaging, we use patient complaints. What was their initial presentation? Are they coming in with some of the similar findings that they had up front? Do they have PMR symptoms? All of these things weigh into our clinical decision to escalate or de-escalate therapy, right? So... Yes, CRP is less reliable in patient tocilizumab, but it also is less reliable when you're pounding someone with steroids or with any of our drugs, really, for that matter. In terms of the monitoring uh, with imaging, yeah, I do tend to get uh, regular interval sort of imaging studies. I do, you know, obviously we're doing our full physical exam, listening for bruise, all that other stuff. But I think, uh, I think you have to use a combination of, of imaging and labs and patient symptoms. So do you wind up imaging people more who are on tocilizumab because you're worried you may be missing simmering disease or something along those lines? No, not necessarily. I think I, I, it, for people with large vessel involvement, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do imaging at regular intervals, regardless of what medication they're on. And then, of course, if there's new symptoms, then I would, I would do it more regularly. That is something that I've noticed in my own practice is that I'm a little more image trigger happy when I have someone on tocilizumab just because if they have sort of vague symptoms, 
and I don't know whether the CRP is going up or whether that matters, um, I feel like I'm more likely to image them, which I think adds further to the cost issue. I, th- I should note that there have been a number of series that show that you can have a totally normal CRP in someone who's on tocilizumab with giant cell arteritis, but if you do MRAs of their large vessels, you see active inflammation still. And I don't think we know what that means, but it's something that kind of keeps me up at night monitoring these patients. <laughs> Another thing, though, is even with the patients who are flaring, um, it was, the CRPs were not reliable indicators in those on tocilizumab um, and steroids or in those on steroids alone. So I don't think that we can say that the CRP is necessarily more reliable in, in the patients who are just treated with steroids alone. Yeah, and I, I think I said in my opening, like, I would not treat an isolated CRP. But it is a useful tool in our toolkit. Yes. And yes. you do <laughs> lose that tool when you go on tocilizumab. <laughs> Thanks for that excellent discussion. So now we're going to move on to giving you both an opportunity to give closing thoughts. Dr. Dua? Um, I think this has been a great discussion. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in this topic, um, which is why we're talking about it today. But I do just, you know, like I said, and have been saying throughout this this whole debate, we really have great evidence that tocilizumab should be used first line, along with steroids, in giant cell arteritis patients. And, and really, it goes back to those three main points I talked about. Efficacy, this drug works. Um, it improves patients' quality of life, and that is really important, quality of life. Um, and then safety. So safety, I know, wasn't st- statistically significant, but that there was actually less adverse events in the tocilizumab group. And I think these are just the really main, main things that we need to think about when we're treating our patients. And it's super exciting that we have this drug at our disposal, and I think we should be using it. All right, I think those are strong closing statements. But, uh, you know, I would like to close with some classic words, which are physicians are called to first do no harm. Oh. <laughs> In this case, I would argue that caution should be the operational approach. Start patients on glucocorticoids and taper them over 52 weeks. Uh, if they flare, you can always go back to the last glucocorticoid dose that worked and start tocilizumab then. Uh, it's true that more patients will flare with this approach, but you will also spare a large subset of patients a potentially harmful and certainly costly biologic therapy. Uh, patients can never experience harm from a drug they don't take, and I urge you to vote against this motion. <laughs> Thank you to both of you for coming on to the debate show. I think this was a lot of fun, and it's a good topic, and one that I think a lot of people will be interested to hear. Uh, I hope that listeners enjoyed the, the debate. The most important thing now is for you to go on to Twitter and be sure to vote in the poll so we know which side was the winner. You can find me at EB Room. You can find Dr. Dua at Anisha underscore Dua. And you can find Sarah Fantas at Sarah Fantas. Thanks again to both of you for coming on. Thank you. Awesome. It was great being here. (laughs) 